Hello, good evening, and welcome. It's the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, and I know that this program goes out all over the world. And you're going to know I realize that by our guest during the course of this segment, uh, during the course of the program, I should say. But I was out in the street earlier coming here just barely an hour ago. And... You know, the sun was kind of out. It's been hot and muggy all day. They've been predicting a downpour all day, right? You can tell, and, and it seemed like it was a little late in coming, but you can tell in New York City when it's getting ready to rain. Right, Jason? You can tell. You can tell. First of all, the birds fly in some crazy ways in this town when it's getting ready to rain. If you pay attention, you look up in the sky, The pigeons are not flying in a discernible pattern like they might be under normal circumstances. I saw that, and I thought, you know what? The rain is getting ready to come. And here it is. We're right in the middle of it. So the program, this is my third program here on the Progressive Radio Network, and I am so happy and so grateful to be here. But here's what we do. We profile ten stories. A little chunk of analysis by yours truly on each one. We have a main story with a very special guest who will be joining us later on in the broadcast. And then at the end, we have something called To the Ridiculous, which is just a news item that is whack. And believe me, I got a whack one for you today. I should say our first story among our top ten is also whack. It's the Hobby Lobby decision on the part of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, I've been thinking before the program started how I would best describe my feeling about this decision. Um, because, you know, I, I, I've never been the person who has, you know, used vulgarity or cursed or whatever. I'll just put it this way. The decision stinks. It stinks. It's anti-woman, it has the potential to be anti-gay, and it has the potential, I don't care what Alito says, it has the potential to allow corporations, what do they call them, closed corporations, whatever they are, it allows corporations, it has the potential, that is, to allow corporations to discriminate against almost anybody they choose based on religious grounds. Now, it's not like the United States of America has not discriminated against people in its history on religious grounds. Do you know what Christianity used to say about black people back in the day? Oh, you're going all the way back there. We've become enlightened. How dare you? It's true. It's true. Look it up if you don't believe me. And I would say, look it up anyway. You shouldn't believe me. 
But look at some of the things that so-called good Christians said about blacks and said about women throughout this nation's history. And you'll see why Hobby Lobby stinks. Now, some people make the argument that Justice Samuel Alito said this is a very narrow ruling. And, you know, you can't say that, you know, we have uh, laws and regulations in place that won't allow corporations to expand their religious beliefs to discriminate against other people. And that this is a, you know, the, the idea of not paying for contraception. Uh, well, the government can do it. Yeah, right. John Boehner is going to wake up tomorrow morning because in order for the government to do it, either Barack Obama's got to take an executive action, more on that later, or it's got to pass the Congress, neither of which is going to happen anytime soon. And, and the Supreme Court, Alito and the people that were part of this majority, including uh, silent Clarence Thomas, they all knew this. They all knew this. And, you know, there are some people that are making light of people's concerns. Uh, Ian uh, Milheiser from the Center for American Progress. This is not a narrow opinion. This reverses fundamental assumptions of religious liberty law. I tend to agree with him. But there are others that uh, say, nah, nah, it's not that. In fact, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg lays out some stuff like blood transfusions, antidepressants, medications derived from pigs, derived from pigs, including anesthesia, intravenous fluids, and pills coated with gelatin, and vaccinations. There are a number of religious groups that have a problem with these particular remedies, medicines, etc. And, and maybe they're right. But this ruling could well open them up to say, if they own a, a, corp, a, a, closed, a closed corporation, they can jump up and say, hey, you know what? We're opting out of this. Now, Samuel, uh, Samuel Alito, who wrote for the majority, said all of this is just speculation. The government presented, quote, no evidence that insurance plans in existence prior to the enactment of ACA, that's the Affordable Care Act, excluded coverage for items like transfusions or anesthesia. Now, he knows better than that. Alito knows better than that. You have now set a precedent. It's not about what happened before the Affordable Care Act. It's the door that you opened with this decision. And they know it. They know it. Now, there are others. Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe, who I, I respect, who said, I quote, I think the decision is much more limited than Justice Ginsburg suggests. He says the, the majority suggestion that the government could simply pay for contraception coverage if employers do not wish to. The option of having the government pay is clearly not going to be available in a lot of other cases involving discrimination or compulsory vaccinations. I think it's premature to say they're marching off a cliff. Now, uh, Georgia State University law professor Eric Segal. I'm not, he's a quote, I am not an Alito fan, but we, he went out of his way to write a narrow opinion. Besides, 
What will decide the case the next time this issue gets to the Supreme Court is who's on the Supreme Court. Now, if I were part of the LGBT community, I'd be very nervous about this. I'd be truly nervous about Hobby Lobby because there are a number of fundamentalist Christian organizations and some of the people that donate to those organizations run corporations, ladies and gentlemen. Let's not pretend this doesn't exist. People hate gays. They hate lesbians. They hate transgender people. They hate them. They hate bisexuals, for God's sake. And this could open the door for wholesale discrimination against the LGBT community, among others. Alito, again, oh, no, 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 we wouldn't do that. But here's a quote from his majority opinion. Quote, the principal dissent raises the possibility that discrimination in hiring, for example, on the basis of race, might be cloaked as religious practice to escape legal sanction. Our decision today provides no such shield. The government has a compelling interest in providing an equal opportunity to participate in the workforce without regard to race, and prohibitions on racial discrimination are precisely tailored to achieve that critical goal. He didn't talk about gender. He didn't talk about sexual orientation. And by the way, and this is one of the things that really bothers me, not about my religion, because I, you know, I was in church this past Sunday. And the folks I go to church with, I find to be some pretty progressive people. And I draw sustenance from my faith. But I don't know who empowered some of these people to act as though their particular view of religion, and I don't care what religion it is, could be Christianity, could be Zoroastrianism. But I don't know who empowered them to think that they had the right to discriminate against people. And make no mistake, this Hobby Lobby decision discriminates against women. Just my judgment. Now, President Obama is planning to ban discrimination against gays and lesbians who work for federal contractors. He might as well go ahead. He was waiting for the Hobby Lobby decision. Now that it's come out, the president needs to go ahead and move. Move, 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 move. Because this Supreme Court, and, and I don't totally blame them, because, you know, they, they base their decision supposedly on the law. But the religious, the people who run corporations who believe that their religion empowers them to deny women reproductive freedom and reproductive rights, that I got a big problem with. I'll always have a big problem with that. And as far as the Congress is concerned, how best to put this? Forget about it. They're not going to pass anything that would allow the government to pick up the slack for these people. They're just, they're just not. Congress isn't going to do it. 
And the Supreme Court knows the Congress isn't going to do it. So, uh, you know, and, and there are some people who've argued in the press that Hobby Lobby's not really that big a deal. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the unintended consequences, because there are always unintended consequences. You know, see, and, and here's the fundamental thing to me. Would this government in the United States of America, or would the legal system, would the courts, the highest court in the land, have they done anything to proscribe the reproductive rights and freedom of men. And I have to tell you, as far as I can tell, I could be wrong. Maybe somebody can call and correct me because we're going to talk to you on the phones later. Get your dialing fingers ready. 888-874-4888. Maybe there's something I'm missing here. But I don't see the courts. I mean, you know, there's certain laws that, that preclude men from doing certain things of a sexual nature that are violent, exploitative, etc., but when it comes to men's reproductive freedom and men's reproductive rights, I don't see the court system anywhere, anywhere. Standing up and saying, well, men, you can't do that. Or men, these people don't have to pay for that because their religious beliefs say no Viagra. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, 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 maybe I'm missing something. Now, I know I'm not missing something when we get a little closer to home and go 140 miles north of this city to the city of Albany, the state capital. Week or so back, we were talking about the end of session in the legislature up in Albany. And I said only half joking at the time that I'm sure all these people are just praying that they can get to the end of session without anybody else being led out of the chamber in leg irons. And I was, I was being facetious. Being indicted for something. Well, nobody got led out of the chamber in leg irons, but it's been less than a month since the end of session, and already two, count them, two sitting legislators. One has been accused of a crime. The other has admitted to a crime. The person accused, Thomas W. Libis. Now, he's been in Albany since uh, 1988. He represents a district around Binghamton. He's a Republican. Unlike some Republicans, he's Andrew Cuomo, our governor's good friend, BFF. Now, you know, to be fair, the man was found to have prostate cancer for five years ago now. It spread to his lungs, and uh, he's sick. He's very sick. Now, if he's convicted of what he's accused of, he could face five years in the joint, which is not known to cure cancer. Okay, and I'm not trying to be facetious about that, but facts are facts. Now, he was the number two Republican in the New York State Senate. Number two! Second only to Dean Skelos, who has yet, I must say, has yet to be led anywhere in leg irons. Has yet. Livis, apparently, was indicted along with his son on charges that he lied to federal agents, 
and that his son had filed false tax returns. They were charged in separate indictments. Now, some of this had to do whether or not Libis had made some calls on behalf of his son to some folks he probably shouldn't have called. We all do that, I guess, to an extent. Yeah, it's a family, man. You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to condemn the man for that. But uh, he's been a conduit between Governor Cuomo and the Republican senators who've gone along with Cuomo's relatively conservative fiscal agenda. Says Senator Tom Libis, I am innocent from all these charges. It's very disappointing. And we're going to fight them. Now, if you're keeping score at home, 26 state legislators, that's 26, slightly over two dozen, have left office because of criminal or ethical issues since 2000. Now, that's not me saying that. Citizens Union says that. Okay, so if you, if you want a more reliable source than me, you got it. In the past six months alone, four legislators in Albany have lost their seats. Last week, Assemblymember Gabriella Rosa from Upper Manhattan, Washington Heights, admitted in court that she had entered into a sham marriage for immigration purposes. I don't know how much time she's going to end up getting for that, for that but my God. Do we, do, uh, you know, and, and that's not to say that everybody in Albany's dishonest. You know, but you got a bunch of people. You got Malcolm Smith, who's a Democrat. See, because this is bipartisan corruption. It's not about one party or the other. Although one party will try and make it about the other. But that's all a load of crap. Albany, there are literally billions upon billions of dollars that flow through Albany every year. And the members of the state legislature have a say in where that money goes. And as long as they do, there will be the opportunity for corruption. On a big scale, on a little scale. And, you know, I, I, by the way, not for nothing, Governor Cuomo set up this Moreland Commission to try and root some of this crap out. And then he disbanded it. So, hey, I created it. I can get rid of it. So he did. Doesn't look like such a great decision now, though, does it? <laughs> I'm just saying. Four legislators lost their seats. And I don't know how this is going to turn out for Tom Libis or his son. I mean, they're innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Let them, let them face the bar justice like everybody else. But, uh... Doesn't sound, to me anyway, like it's too good for him. And, and I really hope he successfully battles his medical issues, okay? I, I don't wish medical issue, uh, medical issues or problems or cancer on anybody. Anybody. I don't care what they're accused of. But, my God, my goodness. So that's what's going on in Albany. Now, we got a very special guest who's going to be joining us. He's joining us from the United Kingdom. He's an award-winning video journalist. He's a good friend. He's good people. And we're going to talk a bit about the World Cup, which has been, for me, an amazing journey. And not just for the United States team, which lost, sadly, to Belgium yesterday. Tim Howard 
I, I don't know what else you can say about Tim Howard. But there have been so many side stories around this World Cup. I thought we'd explore them just a bit. There's some issues regarding the African countries that participate. Five African countries made it to the World Cup. Uh, none of them have made it to the round of eight. Algeria tried valiantly before losing. There's some issues with some of the other teams. A couple of guys got sent home. So we're going to talk with our guest, David Dunkley Jimmer. Again, an award-winning photojournalist. He's a professor at Westminster College. He knows football, even if he's not an Arsenal fan like I am. Oh, we got him on the line already. <laughs> David! Hello. How you doing, buddy? I'm okay. I'm okay. It's, uh, it's, it's going up to our midnight pass here, so my fangs are going to come out soon. <laughs> well, listen, thanks a lot for joining us, man. That's all, you know, I really appreciate it, all right? You're very welcome. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, did you see this piece on the BBC about the African countries? Uh, what, the allegation that they fixed matches? No, no. Uh, this is by Ian Hughes. He says, more lows than highs for Africa in Brazil. One step forward, many step back, many steps backwards for Africa. You buying okay. that? No, I haven't seen that one yet. Um, but I would probably imagine that has to do with either the um, presumed successes that we thought. And I say we. I, 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 I'm, I'm picking probably on the Ghanaians now. Mm -hmm. There were high hopes for the Ghanaians and what they did in the last World Cup, and it probably didn't sort of peep out as much as or, or match people's expectations. Mm -hmm. um, the Algerians got as far as they could and were very valiant in what they did, and they didn't uh, surpass into the quarters either. So I, I guess what we're saying is there's been this, uh, I think in the last two World Cups, particularly the last one, there's been this narrative that says uh, we will soon get a, an African team winning the World Cup, and and on the strength of what we've seen, perhaps the Algerians, yeah, but, you know, we just didn't, you know, the Africans just, just, just didn't break through again. Whether it's psychological, whether it's physical, I don't think it's, I don't think it's to do with their play. I think people would agree that, and, 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 and my take on it is that the, the extent, if we look at the World Cup, sort of the chasm and the difference, the differential in play that existed, say, 15, 10 years ago, isn't mm. like that now. I mean, just look at the USA and the way they play. I, I speak to friends today, and they said, you know, <laughs> within 10, 15 years of the next three um, uh, World Cups, it is quite possible that the USA team could win. Now, the USA team 10 years ago, that, that wouldn't be being spoken about. So I, I, in, in the same vein, um, uh, um, I, I don't know what um, Ian from BBC's uh, narrative is, but quite frankly, from what I'm hearing with colleagues who are African writers and, and, and Africans, it is that we just slightly played, the, the Africans slightly played below par. And I, I'm really referring to sort of the, the Ghanaians, the Cameroons, um, the Cote d'Ivoire, you know, mm -hmm. those sort of teams. And, and uh, but, but hopefully they'll come back strong in the next one. I think there's much work to be done. There's nothing like... Uh, a failure. I don't know. It was Winston Churchill who said something like, "You know, failure is it's just a prelude to success." With yeah. enthusiasm, if you just keep on going, you'll get there. Now, David, uh, there are two things that Ian Hughes mentions in his piece. One, uh, that there was infighting among the uh, players from Cameroon, 
And second, that two of Ghana's big stars, Kevin Prince, uh, Prince Botang and Sully Montari, were both sent home for what he describes as indiscipline. What do you know about these two situ- situations? Um, I know that uh, Kevin Prince Botang, indeed, yes, he was sent home. Um, the allegations or whatever it was that led to that um, hadn't come out fully. Uh, it may be that you know the BBC and its and its and its, its news gathering team has a better insight to that effect. Um, but it's not uncommon. I guess it's not uncommon with many teams. I don't mean being sent home. I mean about the sort of disputes within the teams mm-hmm. that can sometimes fracture a team and fracture the relationships. And you know it isn't it isn't a, a characteristic that is. That is wedded to African teams. If you remember how the French imploded a couple of World oh, Cups yeah. back, exactly. You know, so uh, those situations do arise. What was interesting, if you think about it, within the uh, Ghanaian team, is it in the first match, Kevin Prince didn't play until the latter half. Mm-hmm. He wasn't featured in the first team. Now, if you're Kevin Prince and you're seen as one of those players who, frankly, is a must-play. You might dispute that a bit. You might, you might get. Yeah, you wouldn't be the happiest point. camper on the team. Exactly. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So you know, there, 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 to that end, then there's a reason why, and that's the constant challenge also for, um, you know, I mean, Ferguson puts this in perspective, where you have stars in your team, and you have a manager who somehow isn't himself a star, or a manager who on the international stage is either well-respected or well-known. And, and so it's, it becomes very difficult to manage a football team when you have star players in your team and somehow the manager isn't seen as, as, as someone who punches way above their weight in the same way that Manchester United and its Ferguson's watch, who wouldn't tolerate that, frankly, you know, and that is why Beckham had to leave. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. he, he was like, I am bigger than you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so, that is a little problematic. But, David, let me let me shift gears real quickly. Um, here in the States, there is some debate now that the U.S. has been knocked out about whether or not Americans who, uh, and I mean, you know, like 27 million people watched the U.S.-Portugal match. It was a record for, for uh, soccer in the United States. But there are people who now say, well, now that the U.S. is out of it, people are just going to lose interest. Now, I, I'm assuming that's not really the case in the U.K., or am I wrong? Are people in the U.K. still following the games, even though England got knocked out in the group stages? Absolutely. It may not garner the same figures, but two or three things, two or three reasons why. Firstly, because they are, there are six schedules for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. So they come on the BBC and the independent channel ITV as a matter of course and they interrupt the schedules in such a way that if you, you cannot avoid watching them. Secondly, I would say because of the, of the general sense that the Brit, the English, didn't or don't seem to expect their teams to go that, that far, whether they're in it or not, they will still watch the World, the, the World Cup. There is, a, there, 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 there's a, there, there is an inkling towards actually watching good football. Mm-hmm. whether the English are involved or not. And, and by God, you know, 
1966. If, 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 they, if they stopped watching, there'd be no one here, because that was the last time you actually watched it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. so, so they, they, they'll run with it, quite frankly. They're, they're great sports lovers. They'll run with it. They're, they're looking for quality football and, and the sports commentary that we've been hearing and the analysis from the teams that we've been, been having. And they're, 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 you know, our own commentators, whether BBC or IT, are reflecting a kind of national mood that, yes, we are still interested. We can't wait to see if it's going to happen, a match between the Argentinians and the Brazilians or the Colombians because there's quality play in there. Oh, and yeah. And just want yeah. to see really just good football. So, yeah, we're still following it here. It's, it's not... I think the difference is, uh, as I said, because our team went out early... Um, if there will be a distinct difference, it would be that those people who, the fans who went there with them would probably be coming back. And I've had two or three friends who went there and have already flown back. But in terms of the, of, of, of the, of the broadcast, we're still, you know, the, the, the English are still showing a great deal of enthusiasm for that. David Dunkley Jimmer is our very special guest. He's an award-winning video journalist, professor at Westminster College. Uh, David, to what extent, and I think this is uh, uh, something that I found very interesting about about the U.S. Uh, uh, change in attitude towards soccer with this World Cup. To what extent do you feel that nationalism generally plays a role in how many people across the world end up watching these matches? One of the things I find interesting is that, for example, the Algerian team, uh, a substantial number of those uh, players were not born in Algeria but chose to play for the national team. On the other hand, there are numbers of, of uh, uh, players from the Francophone African countries who have chosen not to play for the country from which they were born but decided to play for France or for one of the other teams. Um, and I'm wondering whether nationalism plays a role on a global stage in all this. Um, nationalism, now, you mentioned that word, and if anyone's listening to us, if anyone's, a lot of people are listening to you, it evokes a sense of either pride or something which is probably seen as a little bit more kind of overtly enthusiastic, mm-hmm. is the word I'm getting to. Um, it, 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 it swings both ways. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, and you, you look at someone like uh, Onuwingi who plays in the UK, but play for the Nigerians. You look at the two Boatings, one of which plays, one of whom works, plays for Germany, the other one who plays for Ghana. Uh, Manchester United uh, player, whose name would just come to me, our main striker, who had the choice to play for Ghana, but in the end plays for England. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, I think it's preference. I, I think it's prefer- a preference in the sense. And, 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 and interesting enough, that preference is borne out by, I, I would suppose, the idea that if you are going to play for a team that isn't a Western team, a Westernized team, or whatever the case is, mm. and you are going to play for a team from, for want of a better word, from one of the developing countries, horrible word, horrible word, but I'll just use it in this context, then I guess what you're, you're, you're saying, I believe that that team has a lot to offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the big shift. That's the big difference now. I think the days when perhaps a, 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 a footballer would clamour to play because they had a British passport or they were British citizens, but they had parents who were from Ghana would clamour to play for, the, for, for England. Uh, it, 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 I, I sense that's no longer a huge issue anymore because the Ghanaians themselves play good football. 
Mm. So you would still get a good crack and the glory and the accolades and everything else that comes with playing good, foot, good football. So I don't think it's something which people... It is a deep-seated, of course it is, if you're going to play for your, 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 your parents' country, then, then it will be. But I don't think people mull over it in such a way to say, well, it, it's, a, it's a sense of nationalism. Of course it's a sense of pride playing for where you, you were brought up or where you, where, where you came from originally. But yes, it, it, it's, the Algerian team is, is, is an interesting one because in, in, in all the commentaries they've made, the commentators have made the point that half the Algerian team, if not more than them, play in the French League and elsewhere, and are French-speaking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, you could almost have Team B, mm. the French team, Team B, become the Algerian team in a sort of a, a power universe. And that's how good now uh, they've they become. That's how good all the players have become. Most of the players we're seeing now in, in the World Cup also play professional football in leagues, in either the, whether it's going to be the Bundesliga, whether it's going to be one of the, the Spanish League, La Liga, or the yeah. Italians, or whatever, they all play in those very fiercely contested uh, 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 leagues and the Premier League, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So oh, you're getting a real convergence now in, in, in football play that didn't exist, as I said, about sort of ten, um, sort of fifteen years ago. Mm. Mm. David, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Which okay. do you prefer watching? Club football or World Cup football? Yeah. Now, that, <laughs> this, is, this is an interesting one. This is an interesting question. Um, um, the, the English and the, the Brits uh, take great pride in their Premier League. In fact, uh, you will hardly, uh, hardly a week goes by when some pundits somewhere won't say the Premier League is the creme de la creme of football because of the players that are playing it and also because the Premier League is played at a pace. So in other words, when we watch teams like Colombia play and they play ricocheting the ball over like billiard balls or snooker balls, the, the, the analogy that comes to the fore is that this is like a Premier League game. Yeah, so this, yeah. It's relentless. The ball's just up and down. And in a way, therefore, that kind of answers my question now because the, 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 the play is changing that play, I mean, if, if, if one of the, the plays they showed was that the, 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 the sort of fixed, for want of a better word, game about a couple of World Cups back where the Algerians were kicked out because the Germans decided just to play the ball around for 18 minutes. They were booed off by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That was, um, that, that was, that was horrible. And it's, and it's, it's, it's on YouTube so people can uh, have a look. Um, uh, and, 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 and whether they discussed it beforehand, we don't know, but it, they certainly didn't go out. But, but, but the point I'm leading to here is the kind of, sedentary or slow play that you see in previous World Cups where they build up and then they attack. Mm -hmm. That hasn't quite been the case here. All the matches have been exciting. They've been played at pace. So that's a difficult one. On on, on a good day, I would pick pick a Premier team playing. But um, on on a day, every every four years, I I, I would certainly um, have a crack at seeing a great World Cup football. Yeah, so, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I love club football, as you know. Uh, I should share with the audience, I, uh, some years ago, was sitting in a pub in London, and I had not yet met David. Right? <laughs> so I'm sitting there watching Arsenal, my team, was playing. So this guy <laughs> is sitting there, and we start this whole conversation, and we're talking, and we're going back and forth, and talking, talking, talking. 
<laughs> and finally, he looks at me and says, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, no. <laughs> and he said, I'm David. I said, oh, my God. Anyway, it, it was yeah, that was a nice one. I, I enjoyed that. I, oh, I really yeah. did. Yeah, you know, yeah, I could, absolutely. I, I, I could have picked your pocket and you wouldn't have known who it was and then come back the next day and say, hey, Mark, by the way. <laughs> Here's your wallet back. <laughs> now, David, I'm going to put you on the spot one more time because we're out of time. Okay. Who you got? Out of the, out of, who do you think is going to be playing in the finals and who do you think ultimately will win World Cup 2014? Oh, gosh, a uh, difficult one. I think the Brazilians, because of the verve and their national support, are going to really go far with this. They're going to have to. I think, uh, for me, uh, there's, there's three in this still, the Colombians, Argentinians, and, for me, the Germans. The Germans are relentless. Uh, they, they will, they've always got there, and so that's, that's, I can't see them failing, but I, 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 would, I would like to see Brazil in, in the final. Just before you do hang up on me, though, one last thing, so that if anyone's listening, you referred to me as a professor before. In the UK, we don't call them that because oh, sorry. it's a slight difference. It's, 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 it's quite okay. Uh, so I would be called a senior lecturer, but in the, I'm saying this today, if any of my colleagues are listening who are professors, <laughs> they won't I just promote my so I wouldn't like that to happen. But hey, great. I mean, I, I think this is going to be an amazing World Cup. It's one of the best in many years and I really look forward to uh, chatting to you some more offline uh, yeah. when it comes to the final and we can we can we can share a beer and toast to and see whether uh, any of this will affect Arsenal next year because apparently Arsenal are gunning for a couple of players from the Literally. World Cup so, yeah, so you never know the gunners might be a gunner there you go David Dunkley Jimmer as always man great to talk with you and we'll talk again soon offline for sure smashing mark thank you very much alright you take care thanks for being All with right. us bye He's an award-winning video journalist, journalist, and senior lecturer at Westminster College. He is David Dunkley Jimmer. Now, it's 21 minutes, 22 minutes before the hour is 7 o'clock. We're going to take a quick break, all right? We'll listen to a little music, and then we'll come back. And we got some more stories for you. We're going to open up our telephones, 888-874-4888-888-874-4888. And please... You don't have to talk about the World Cup, uh, you know, because I know I got friends who, when you when I start talking about soccer or what I call football, what the rest of the world calls football, they don't score enough goals. There's no scoring. It's boring. You know, whatever. You can talk about whatever's on your mind. When we come back, we're going to talk about what's going on in Israel uh, with the murder of those three young Israeli teenagers. And then the killing of a young Palestinian that some are calling revenge. We got a bunch of other things to talk about. And we still got the ridiculous left, so don't go anywhere. This is the Progressive Radio Network.
20 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. Good evening. Welcome, if you're just joining us. If you've been with us for a minute, we're glad you're here. This is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley, and you're listening to the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM. Our number, 888-874-4888. Uh, what's going on in Israel right now would lead some, not me, but some, to say a pox on everybody's house. You know, it's like, now you got to start involving teenagers in this? You've got to abduct and murder teenagers to make a political point? I don't care which side of this you're on. As uh, one of the Israeli, uh, and I, I want to make sure I say who it is, it may have been one of the families of the victim. Oh, no, the uncle of one of the three slain Israeli teenagers. There is no difference between blood and blood. Murder is murder. Whatever the nationality or age are, there is no justification, no forgiveness or penance for any murder. I'm not sure I disagree with that. Now, it doesn't mean you go out and shoot people. But there is no excuse, none, for involving teenagers in your mess. And that's what it is. A mess. It's been a mess for years, since way before these kids were born. And now, the bodies of these three young people found June 30th. They were brought for a joint burial to the city of Modin, halfway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. That took place yesterday. And now, a 19-year-old Palestinian kid forced into a car in East Jerusalem. The police are trying to locate whoever did it. They don't have anybody in custody yet. But that young man turned up dead. And, you know, I, it, I'm at an age and at a time in my life where I feel like it kind of like doesn't matter whether it was a revenge killing or not. It doesn't matter. It's murder. It's wrong. The people that did it need to pay for it. And at some point, people on both sides of this, the Israelis and the Palestinians, need to say, this must end. When it gets down to murdering teenagers, this must end. And, you know, I, it's like you see this going on for years and years and years. Because I'm not a kid. And one side blames the other side. The other side blames that side. This one won't talk to this one because this one's involved. This one won't talk to this one because this one's involved. And the overwhelming impulse on my part is to just say, stop it. Stop it. When you're killing children, stop it. And, and by the way, here in the States, kids get killed all the time. Six-year-old kid killed in an elevator. Prince Joshua Avito. A uh, young lady belonged to a marching band in Brooklyn. They just put up a gigantic mural in her honor. 
Last name is Copeland. I don't want to misspell or mispronounce her first name. Stabbed to death like 30 times. And, and the world just feels like it's prepared to tolerate murder. It's like, oh, okay, well, we move on and we wait for the next one. It's terrible. Absolutely terrible. Harriet, my good friend from Bayside, Queens, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Good. I, boy, I miss you mornings. Well, I and like evenings better, you know. It's fun. <laughs> I didn't know. So, anyway... I wanted to talk about something that's going on right here. We're going to have a primary. You're talking about John Lou and Tony Abella? That's right. Yeah, you know, yeah. take a wild guess at whom I'm for. I'm not sure who you're for, Harriet. I'm not going to speak for you tonight. Who are you for? I'm for John Lou and against traitors. You're against Tony Abella. But they, they said they're folding that thing. They're going to start yeah, hanging out with yeah. the Democrats now. For those not who don't, only that, mm. but... I don't think he's supposed to reward bad behavior. Was was Tony Avella, and for those of you who don't know, there's a breakaway faction of Democrats in the state Senate called the IDC, the uh, Independent Democratic Caucus, or Conference, I'm sorry. And they have often caucused with the Republicans. They're led by Bronx State Senator Jeff Klein, who's facing a primary as well in the Bronx. And uh, it, it appears as though... Governor Cuomo, in exchange for the Working Families Party, uh, the Working Family Party's endorsement, managed to broker a deal whereby the IDC is now going to start caucusing with the Democrats and is going to enter into a power-sharing agreement with the Democrats. But that's not good enough for you, Harriet. No, it is not. Um, and besides, I don't trust traitors. <laughs> I mean, you know, he did this, mm -hmm. and like. What has he really accomplished? I wrote him a nasty letter. Tony Avella you're talking about. Yes, and I told him that he broke my heart. But now, Tony Avella is a pretty popular guy out in that part of Queens. He's done well, supposedly, during his terms supposedly, of other offices. Supposedly, he, he and the media love one another. Really? He can't get away from... If he sees a microphone and a camera... <laughs> now, John Liu is a true Democrat, and besides, he's probably and he's not going to have a separate caucus with anybody. No, no, I, I, I know that for sure. I love John Liu. John Liu is very, very good. Yes, and well, I mean Tony Avella is a good person. I, you know, I he is. He may be, but sometimes I think he's a bit unstable. Oh no! What did he do that made you say that? Two things. Besides this, do you remember when he wanted to run for borough president? Mm -hmm. what, what's that about? Well, and sometimes, like, and sometimes people, Harry, you know as well as I do, sometimes people yeah. in politics cannot step out of the spotlight. They're always yeah. trying to find a way back into the arena. They're like boxers. It's, and, like, he never came to our Democratic Club. Ah. He never came. So this is personal. Um, it's like an instability. What, because he didn't come to your club? You're in Bayside, right? He never, he, look, our uh, neighboring state senator came to talk to us more often than he'd ever did. 
Who's your neighboring state senator? I'm curious. Toby Stavisky. Oh, Toby Stavisky. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so this is strange. Well, and yeah, it, it is a little different, Harriet, and I want to thank you very much for the call. It, it, it is different. Tony Avella is, is one person who's being challenged. Jeff Klein is being challenged by Oliver Coppell. Uh, in what appears to be an increasingly nasty race, uh, uh, Coppell, uh, the former city councilman, accused one of Klein's supporters of anti-Semitism. Klein has lined up a bunch of uh, labor union endorsements. It's a very, very interesting little political season. And we'll see whether we have any more people voting this time around and voted uh, in the congressional races, of which there weren't that many. Now, I, I do want to get in a couple of more stories because there's some important things going on. The top court in the great state of New York, the Court of Appeals. See, they don't have, like, they, they, there is no New York Supreme Court per se. There is a state Supreme Court, but they hear criminal cases. The Court of Appeals is the court of last resort, the best court in the land. It's certainly the one with the most clout, okay? In a 5-2 to two decision, the State Court of Appeals says that individual towns upstate can ban fracking. That's right. Ban fracking. Yay. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't know whether the, uh, the oil interests and the other people who are going to make goo gobs of money out of fracking uh, will take this any further. But this is a great, as far as I'm concerned, a great ruling. Now, what happened was an energy company had acquired oil and gas leases in one town, Dryden, in Tompkins County. And in 2011, Dryden, along with Middlefield, amended their zoning laws to prohibit fracking on the basis that it would threaten the health, environment, and character of these communities. And you know what? They're right. And I, I mean, I'm not, you know, always down with zoning regulations, but this is a stroke of genius. Well, in a five to two decision, the state court of appeals affirmed a lower court ruling, rejecting the argument that state oil and gas law preempted the local ordinances. Now, the thing about it is there's been a moratorium on fracking. And Governor Cuomo appears to be in absolutely no hurry to decide whether or not to allow it. Certainly he's not going to do it before November, <laughs> before the election. Um, for those of you who are unaware, fracking is the process by which a mix of water and chemicals is injected into the ground at high pressure to break up shale deposits and release natural gas. Now, People who are not down with fracking think that some of the chemicals that they use in this process may contaminate groundwater. Uh, I tend to agree. Or at least until they know, I wouldn't mess with it. I wouldn't. Now, my instincts say, just like my instincts say that, you know, Consumers have an absolute right to know whether their food has been genetically modified. I believe that citizens, whether they be in New York, Pennsylvania, I don't care where they are, have a right to know, not speculate about, not take the oil company's word for it, but to know 
what the risks are. Because, see, the oil companies come in, they got boatloads of money, and what they say is, oh, this is jobs creation we got going on here. Jobs creation. Now, I don't know whether these folks are just going to try and open their checkbooks more. The one story I saw, one of the stories I saw about this, because I saw more than one, implies that the oil companies are going to give up the ghost in New York and they'll turn their attention elsewhere, maybe Pennsylvania or whatever. I just don't trust it. When people are going after money, they will tell you anything. Anything. Because it's it's money, (laughs) after all. It's dollars. And don't think for an instant that they won't lie to you. I'm not talking about prevaricate or tell half-truths. I'm saying don't think for a moment they will not lie to you in pursuit of profit. Speaking of profit, hey, Jason, take a wild guess. What is the average price for an apartment in Manhattan if you're buying a co-op or condo? Take a guess. (laughs) $200,000. You joke, my friend. The figure is one. Point six nine seven million dollars. I'm in another world. I have no clue what I'm saying. One point six. That's in the second quarter of this year. Wow. Almost one point seven million dollars. Not according to Mark Riley. According to the Corcoran Group, they're a brokerage firm that makes goo gobs of money every time one of these big joints is sold. Okay, so they keep close. They pay close attention. The median price, which is the middle of the market, is up to nine hundred twenty thousand. Now, that 1.697, that's up 20% from the second quarter of last year. Two zero percent. Uh, the chief executive officer of Corcoran, in stating the obvious, <laughs> New York is getting very expensive. <laughs> Gee, tell me something I don't know. Now, what's interesting about this is she didn't say Manhattan. She said New York. See, because to Corcoran, New York and Manhattan are interchangeable. It's like the other four boroughs need not exist. Okay, Don't bother with them. The Bronx, forget about it. They're talking Manhattan here. Now, the same woman from Corcoran, quote, when the average price jumps to $1.6 million, it's actually closer to $1.7, there's a group of buyers that can no longer afford the apartments they want in Manhattan. Thank you again for that revelation and i I mean what what are people supposed to do what are people supposed to do by the way sellers and it's a seller's market right now jason they received 98.9 percent of their asking price 98.9 that means if they had to go down they just went down a couple grand (laughs) you know that's how hot the market is. And, you know, uh, there's a, a real estate joint, like, down the block from here, which I pass when I'm on my way here. I don't even stop to look. <laughs> I'm not looking at that foolishness. That's Upper West Side joints. I can remember when the Upper West Side was funky. <laughs> okay. I remember when the Upper West Side was someplace you just bounded through. Used to be, like, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans on Columbus Avenue and 87th, 88th Street. I used to go to party. Anyway, I don't want to wax too nostalgic if you know what i mean i didn't get a chance to talk about the union fees 
which they say is uh, it may not be such a blow to labor. The Supreme Court said that some government employees don't have to pay any fees to the unions uh, representing them. I don't know why not. If you're not going to pay the fees, then don't take the stinking benefits. How about that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just, you know, just some things are obvious to me and maybe not obvious to everybody else. President Obama getting ready to use the big stick to help immigrants. I'm all for that. But I wanted to make sure. Oh, and the cannibal cop got let out of jail. Apparently, having a deviant fantasy is not the same as actually trying to conspire to kidnap and cook and eat women. I hope he, I, I hope the guy, like, turns into a law-abiding citizen. That's all I can tell you. All right, Jason, it's time for the ridiculous. By the way, I would commend to your attention, if you get a chance, look at James Risen's article on Blackwater that was in the New York Times the other day. Frightening, frightening thing. Okay, this is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. There's a guy who's been on video. Apparently, this video has gone viral. He was coming out of some brunch joint the other day and says, my dad owns half of effing Manhattan. And, I mean, I looked at the video. The guy was bombed. I mean, bombed. And, uh, you know, says to this guy, tell me it's your property. I'm going to call the cops because you don't think I own the cops? You want me to call effing Bill de Blasio on you right now? He's an epic liberal, but I'll effing call him. Just, uh, you know, uh, yeah, nouveau riche gone mad. But here's the kicker. This guy isn't who he said he was. His dad don't own half of Manhattan. His dad is a garment industry executive who lives in Jersey. He don't even own half of Allenhurst, New Jersey. His name is uh, Jerry Shalom, and he should never, ever, ever, ever show his face in front of a video camera or even in front of his friends. By the way, one of his friends collapses on the sidewalk during the middle of this video. I mean, collapses. And the guy who he's yelling at says, you know, you ought to go over and help your friend. <laughs> it's like, what friend? <laughs> That's not my friend. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. Ridiculous. Anyway, I've kind of uh, talked and talked and talked. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm glad you were here. Come back next week, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on the Progressive Radio Network. My thanks to Jason Tobinfeld keeping us on the path. My thanks to you for listening. My name is Mark Riley. We'll be back, God willing. And not too much rain. <laughs> the creek don't rise.